So um, last week, if you were here or not, uh, Chris Henson introduced us to the book of Colossians. It's kicking off our summer study. That's what we're going through is the book of Colossians. Uh, and he taught us a lot about what's happening in this book. It gave us a lot of background context. Uh, that This is a book where Paul is trying, the Apostle Paul is trying to correct a lot of false teaching that had crept into this church from every sort of philosophy and religion out there. Um, that there's sort of this conglomeration of different ideas. Uh, and it has Epaphras, who has worked very hard to establish this church, it has him very worried. So he comes to Paul and asks for help. Uh, and Paul responds by writing this letter. Uh, and he starts off, um, with prayer, right? He thanks God for the Colossians, for their love in the spirit, uh, that they understand the gospel. And then he continues to pray, which is what we're going to dig into today. And then he writes a whole letter trying to uh, fix a lot of these misunderstandings that they are facing. Um, so uh, today we're going to be in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. If you go, open, go ahead and open your Bible, I'm going to slow myself down. Um, if you're using the Bible in the chair near you, it's page 983. Uh, if you're flipping through your own Bible, it's in the New Testament. It's in the Ian's section, right? So it's First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, and then First and Second Thessalonians. Um, so if you get to Timothy, you've gone too far. Make a U-turn. Um, so page 983, if you have it in your Bible. Uh, if not, it will be up here on the screen behind me. I don't have to keep turning. I can point to the screen. It's still there. All right. Uh, and it says this. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is a thick text with a lot of moving parts. Uh, there are lists within lists there. Real quick before we like super dig in, I'm just going to like break down what you just saw. So, Paul is describing his prayer to the Colossians. It has two sections, each with smaller parts. Um, first, in verses 9 and 10, he prays that the Colossians would be given three things. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Ooh, step back there. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Um, those things, he says, will lead them to walking in a way worthy of the Lord, so that their lives would be pleasing to him, and ultimately will lead them to bear fruit with every good work, and that will lead them to increased knowledge. It's a cause and effect relationship. Being filled up with the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding leads them to walk in a way worthy of the Lord, which leads to more understanding. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Then he moves to the second part of the prayer. In 11 through 12, he prays for them to be strengthened by God, that they would have endurance and patience with joy. So this isn't dependent on the first part. This is its own second part. Uh, and this endurance and patience with joy would lead them to being thankful. And then finally, in 13, 14, he stops describing his prayer for them, and he explains what they should be thankful for. And he starts preaching the gospel to them, that God has qualified them, transferred them uh, from darkness to light, redeemed them, and forgiven them. So, like, that's the nutshell version of what we just saw. Um, before we dig in, I, I want to point something out to you. Right? I'm, we're going to go through every part of this kind of bit by bit. But 
what you see here is not a prayer. It's a description of a prayer. So surely Paul has prayed these things. He's not doing that thing where like somebody tells you like, hey, this is going on in my life. You're like, I'll be praying for you. And that like, so that like is the prayer that you pray for them. That's not what he's doing, right? Um, he is telling them about what he has prayed for them. Why? He's painting a picture of what they need, of what he wants for them. He's painting a picture of the fullness of the Christian life. He's pointing them towards something bigger than religious systems, bigger than philosophies, bigger than teachings. He's pointing them to Christ. He is painting a picture of Jesus with this prayer. Let me explain. When you look at it, right, if we break this down into what he's asking for God for this people, who has more intimate knowledge of the will of God than Jesus? Who has more spiritual wisdom? Who has more understanding? Whose life was fully pleasing to God? Who walked in a manner worthy of the Lord? It's Jesus, right? It's over and over. Every part of this prayer is about Jesus. He's pointing them towards Jesus, right? Who bore fruit with every good work? How about this? Who showed more endurance in the face of trials and tribulations? The man who spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness, who faced every temptation, who spent years ministering, who uh, bore our punishments on a brutal cross. Who showed more endurance than him? Who has more patience with sinners and religious elite alike, people who are constantly challenging him? Who was patient even on trial to be put to death? It's Jesus. And who is it that has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints? It's Jesus. It is his qualifications that you get. It is his inheritance that you get. So as he points to these things, and like I said, we'll break them down individually, he's pointing them to a life that looks like Jesus's. And there's a big point that I want to make with this, right? Um, and it's this. Who but God alone can make these things happen in us? All of these things come from God. All of these things in our lives come from God. With that, we've got four big points today. Uh, point number one is this. God reveals himself to us. So if we start, we look back at the verse, right? Verse 9 starts with the word, and so. And so uh, is uh, pointing us to the... Sorry, let me say that again. And so points us back to what we just saw, right? Paul is saying that he's been praying for them without ceasing because of something. And that something is this, that Epaphras has come to him and told him that uh, the Colossians have shown evidence of grace in their lives. They've shown that they believe the gospel and they have love for one another. And that's great. Like, like love and, 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 and trusting the gospel are like the two big things. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but Paul is now going, okay, cool. They have evidence. I'm going to pray for them. I want to pray that they have more than just the basics. I want to pray that they have everything. And the first thing he tells them that he prays for them is for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So first things first. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom are three different things, right? So knowledge is information-based. It's fact-based. Wisdom and understanding, especially biblically, have more to do with like discernment and judgment and application, okay? So knowledge, facts, and, uh, knowledge that's facts. Wisdom and understanding, judgment, application. Um, also, 
just a side note, biblically, a lot of the times when you see wisdom and knowledge in the Bible, sorry, wisdom and understanding in the Bible, they're paired next to each other over and over. They're, like, they're right next to each other just like they are here. It's just a, a sort of common theme. Um, but a couple of examples to sort of set like, the bar of like, how these things are different, right? You may have heard these before. Um, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Understanding is knowing why. How about this one? Knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein is the name of the scientist, not the monster. Wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein is a monster. Understanding is knowing that that's because of his moral failures that set the whole story in motion. Um, someone's going to argue with me that there, like an English major. No? Okay, she said no. All right, I'm on it. All right. Um, so notice that um, he doesn't pray for these things separately, right? He prays for knowledge of his will in, not and, in wisdom and understanding, right? We need all three of these things wrapped together, and here is why. Um, let's say someone has under, uh, just accepted Christ. They've understood the gospel, uh, and they want to know, like, hey, cool, what now? What do I do now? And you tell them, God's will is for you to live like, that, like him. Cool, that's knowledge. They get that now. Great, they have that fact. Um, is your job done? No, right? Like, that's not it. They need wisdom and understanding to know what that means. They need to know what Jesus was like. They need to know how to apply that to their lives in the day in and day out situations, right? They need to understand the gospel of grace for when they mess up. And so Paul's gonna explain a lot of that in this letter, but Paul knows, and he wants the Colossians to know this, that ultimately, right, ultimately, the knowledge that brings about change comes from God. So Paul trusts God with the task, right? He asks him to fill them, not just to tell them, to fill them with the knowledge of his will for them, wrapped in wisdom and understanding needed to live it out, to live a fruitful life. So the Colossians need to know, and you and I need to know, that God can and will reveal himself to us. and his will to us. And he will wrap it in wisdom and understanding. So now, we don't have to scour every uh, philosophy and religious system in the universe to figure out how we're supposed to live, to figure out what the truth is. Now, lest we be betrayed uh, by our own wayward hearts, we do need a guide. So like the Colossians didn't have the Bible like we do now. Um, we know this because like the New Testament is being written in this moment. The book that we're looking at is a letter written to the Colossians that becomes part of the canon of the Bible. So they didn't have the full New Testament yet, um, but Paul is trying to give it to them. Um, but what my point of that is this. Please don't hear me tell you that, like, you need to go home and pray for God's guidance and then jump onto whatever your uh, brain, like, whatever you think you heard. Um, even a regenerated heart can be deceived by its own intentions. So, like, if you go home, you're like, God, what's your will for me? New Lambo? Got it. Um, make sure you're checking what you feel God has revealed to you against what he has concretely revealed to the world in his word. Just... Um, ultimately, the point is this, though. Um, it is ultimately God who instills in us the knowledge of, the ability to discern, and the power to follow through with his will, uh, and, that, and that's through the inner working of the Holy Spirit alongside his inspired word, right? So Philippians 2, put that a lot simpler, says God works in you both to will and to work for his good. So, 
That's verse 9. Hey, it's like 15 minutes in, we got verse 9 down. Um, when we understand that that's what he's praying for, for knowledge of his will wrapped in wisdom and understanding to apply it, the next sentence makes a lot of sense. So let's look at verse 10 and 11. Or sorry, most of just verse 10. So, uh, wrapped in understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, Jewish authors often uh, correlate the idea of walking with the idea of conduct. And I think that makes sense, right? I don't think I had to explain to any of you in here that when he says walking in a manner of the, worthy of the Lord, you're like, oh, I gotta like puff out my chest. Like, we're not walking different. It's about conduct, right? So he's saying, conduct your life in a manner worthy of the Lord. Conduct your life in a manner uh, that is worthy of the salvation, the perfection that Christ has already poured onto you. Walk as if you were perfect because he has already given you his perfection. Walk so that everything you do will be fully pleasing to him, just like Jesus. I had six paragraphs, by the way, six paragraphs of the idea of walking. I was going to deep dive into it. We're not doing that. Um, here's what I will say. The phrase here, right, starts off with so as. That's cause and effect language, right? So how does this walk, how does this change come about so that we can walk pleasing to God? Um, it comes because uh, we begin to, sorry. Yeah, it comes because we begin to live, to conduct our lives in a manner pleasing to the Lord. I've thrown myself off. Um, and we do that by being filled with the knowledge of what he wants for you, wrapped in spiritual wisdom to discern it. And with the understanding of how to apply it. So, you see now how the first part leads into the second part. The question then is this, what does that look like? What does a life worthy of the Lord look like? What does a life fully pleasing to God look like? And I think that we see here, uh, sort of the key to the whole, whole first part of the passage is this. God's will for your life is that you live in such a way that you bear fruit. It looks like bearing fruit in every good work. If you're familiar with Galatians 5, you know that one list of the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and patience, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I'm not a botanist. I'm not a biologist by trade. Uh, in general, though, we can know that trees and plants produce fruit uh, so that, uh, so that animals can eat it, right? They produce fruit so that uh, an animal can eat it, be nourished by it, and then their kids in the room drop the seeds uh, to be planted, right? So that more trees may grow. That's the purpose of fruit. So here's the thing. Here's why I point this out. A lot of us understand our mission, our goal, our duty as Christians as spreading the gospel. And I think that's partly right. The Bible absolutely commands us to preach the, word, the gospel. Yes, you want to plant the seeds of the gospel. Absolutely. But listen, just like real fruit, the seeds of the gospel are embedded in the fruit of the Spirit. The seeds of the gospel are embedded in the fruit of the Spirit. So living a life marked by these fruits is living a life worthy of the gospel. It's pleasing to God. It's uh, what happens when we're filled by his spirit with the knowledge and wisdom and understanding of his will. And then we look at the next part. Living a life like this leads you to experience 
more knowledge of God. Now, we just said that knowledge of God and of his will leads us to bearing fruit. So if knowledge of God leads us to bearing fruit and bearing fruit leads us to knowledge, what does that knowledge lead us to? Bearing more fruit. It leads us to more knowledge, right? It's a spiral, and it's a beautiful spiral. And in it, we see a truth. In that spiral, we see a truth. You don't bear fruit by trying to force yourself to bear fruit. Trees bear fruit in season by being nourished correctly. You bear fruit by being nourished by the God who loves and saves you. That's why we're so gospel-centric in all that we do in this church is because we know that what fuels you to live correctly, to bear fruit, is not just trying harder. It's the gospel. It's God's love for you. It's the fact that all of this comes from God. So if you're looking at your life and you're frustrated because it doesn't look like what Paul's describing here, then maybe the problem isn't that you're not trying hard enough. Maybe it is. Maybe you need to pray a little harder. But I think for a lot of us, the problem is that we're trying so hard to muscle our way through the world. We're trying to do this with our own strength instead of the strength of God. Maybe what you need is not to try harder, but maybe what you need is to rest in the promises of God are you starting to see it? Are you starting to see how it's not about your effort, right? It's not about how uh, hard you try. It's not, certainly not about trying to earn anything from God. Do you need to participate? Yes, you participate. But it is God who empowers you to live and work for him. He reveals himself to you. He fills you with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And then through that, he empowers you to live for him. God reveals himself to us, and then he empowers us. I'm allowing myself one sidestep here, okay? promise myself I only do one. With these two verses, um, there's a conversation we have to have, right? When people talk about following God's will, there's a whole slew of theological conversations that open up about what that means. Uh, for our purposes today, I want to make very clear what, uh, like what I'm saying, very, very clear, uh, because sometimes we get caught up in the question of like, what does God want me to do next? Here's what I'll say. It is not about where you go. It is about how you walk. It is not about where you go. It is about how you walk. Aside from maybe things like ministry and mission, God's will for your life typically has way less to do with vocation, with what college you go to, with where you live, with where you're supposed to get coffee on Tuesday, and way more to do with whether or not you're going to live in light of what he's done when you get there. God's will for you is a life filled with love and good deeds, bearing fruit that builds others up that they might see and know and trust and rejoice in the fact that God is good and that he loves them and that he has rescued them just like he has done for you. So yes, sometimes God may reveal to you what college he wants you to go to, what job he wants you to take, but certainly he has revealed to you that his ultimate will for your life uh, is to look like Jesus, right? Romans 8, 29 sums it up very nicely. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his will for you, to live and walk like Jesus, and he's going to make it happen. He's going to empower you to do it and more. Let's keep going. So third point, I don't know if I ever said the second point out loud. Second point is God empowers us. Third point is God strengthens us. And I know some of you are like, 
That's the same thing. It's not, it's different. We'll see how. Um, we jump into a new part of the prayer, right? This one, not directly caused by the stuff before it. Uh, Paul prays that the Colossians would be strengthened by God's might. Now, um, let's read it real quick and then I'll point some stuff out here. Um, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints of light. Um, if you're an English dork like me and like many of us in the room, uh, there's a lot of us, there's a whole lot of us in here. Um, you probably noticed there's a passive voice there, right? Being strengthened by God is not something we necessarily help with. It's something that God does to us and for us. That's good news, right? He strengthens you. And what does it say we need to be strengthened for? To have endurance and patience with joy. Look, living a life for God is not easy. Bearing fruit in good works, walking that way is hard. We live in a broken world filled with broken people, but the good news is, despite it being hard, it is possible, not with, God, not with your strength, but with God's. Um, endurance and strength are two different things. Sorry, not strength. Endurance and patience are, are slightly different, right? Uh, so endurance is for situations, right? Uh, living for God, uh, living as a godly, loving, fruit-bearing Christian uh, through the chaos that has been our world in the past few years takes endurance, right? COVID, uh, mask mandates, social distancing, lockdowns, political unrest, protests, riots, shootings, traffic on I-45, those things all require endurance, to navigate with an upright and joyful heart. And, and a lot of these things take more endurance than any person might hope to uh, have on their own, but God is our rock, our shield, our fortress, our strength. Those are all biblical phrases. He is our ever-present time uh, help in times of trouble. He is our endurance. So through his spirit, he fortifies us to endure the troubles of this world and continue to bear fruit. So here Paul starts doing something more than just informing them. Now he's giving them hope. He's giving hope to us that in any and every situation, God can get you through it. And then there's patience. So if endurance is uh, situational, then patience is personal, right? So endurance is for traffic on I-45. Uh, patience is for the dude bro in the jacked up truck uh, who is tailgating you on 1488 uh, with his you know, headlights the, the, as strong as the sun, even though you're already going 15 over, right? Patience. Look, people are sinful. They're broken. You, me, the world out there, all of us are broken. We need grace. We need patience. We, and oftentimes, it takes a strength beyond our own to be patient and kind and gentle, to bear fruit of the Spirit with those around us. There's sometimes people we deem as undeserving, right? So we start, like, because we're trying to do things on our own strength, we start making excuses. Well, yeah, I was rude, but he was a jerk first. No, that's not how that works. God can give you the strength to be patient and even joyful in the face of difficult people. Has it ever happened to you? It's happened for me. There have been times in my life where I've dealt with situations uh, with difficult people uh, in ways that I did not believe I could with a peace that surpasses understanding uh, and dealt with them in a, 
in a God-glorifying way, despite what my heart wanted. There have also been times where I did not do that. There have been plenty of times in my life where I was the difficult person and someone else needed God's patience uh, to deal with me, and plenty of times where they got that. God strengthens us to be patient and loving and kind with broken people in a sinful world. And isn't that good news? But on top of saving you, he also fills you with knowledge and wisdom and then empowers you and then strengthens you. Listen, are you tired? Do you feel stuck? Do you feel stagnant? Like you don't know where God's leading you next? I want to encourage you to stop trying to muscle your way through life on your own knowledge, your own power, your own strength. Press into him. Look to him. Realize that all of this comes from him. Let his strength be yours. And what does this strength ultimately create in us? What does it produce in us? It produces a joyful thanksgiving. We thank God for getting us through the hard times, uh, but we also thank him for more. Uh, see, we immediately go in the passage from thanking God for these temporary worldly things to thanking him for the great big cosmic things. Look, he says, God, we thank you not just because we made it through the hard times, but because you gave us the strength to do it, just like we thank you because you have rescued us. And that's point four today. God has rescued us. As Paul begins to transition to sort of the meat of this letter, right, kind of transitioning out of the prayer into uh, the actual teaching, uh, he ends this section and begins the next section with the gospel. It's the whole reason we're here, right? The whole reason any of this works. He has qualified you. That's how he starts. I love that phrase. What a good summation of the gospel of the good news. Look, you don't have the merit, the righteousness, the qualifications to, became, to become an heir of the kingdom of God. You haven't earned it. You weren't good enough. Neither was I. But he has qualified us. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sins, our failures, our moral ugliness, the skeletons in our closet, and he set them aside, nailing them to the cross. And in exchange, he gave us he gave you, he gave me his righteousness, his perfection, his qualifications. He has qualified you. You didn't do anything but exist in the brokenness. But because he loves you, he qualified you to share in the inheritance with the saints in his inheritance and more. I love this. He doesn't stop. He keeps going. He's on a roll, right? He says... He took you out of the domain of darkness, out of the brokenness of the world, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I added a little bit there because I got mixed up with what I was saying. Um, don't let me add to the Bible what it says is enough. Um, so he took us out of the domain of darkness, out of the brokenness of the world, and set you in the kingdom of his son. Look, domains and kingdoms, um, that's not about where you are, right? We still exist. We still live right now on this earthly plane. That's about who rules over you? The enemy, the fallen one, Satan, right? He doesn't own you now. He doesn't control you now. He, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a son of disobedience, as he says in Ephesians. You don't, he doesn't have any say over you. You are ruled by the God who loved you. 
Your king, your ruler, your guider, your father is the Lord of heaven. You are ruled by the God who generously loves and qualifies and empowers and fills and strengthens you. And he hits it again. He says, look, he has redeemed you. That word redeemed just means purchased. Like you redeem a coupon, it kind of goes towards your purchase price, right? Redeem means purchase. He purchased you, not with money, not but something, but with something beyond measure, right? His own life. That's the debt we owed was our life, and that's what he paid for us. God himself, who created the cosmos and upholds it all, came down to this planet as a man and died a death on our behalf. So that our sinfulness, our slights against God, our, uh, like all of our brokenness, like they deserve a payment we could not afford. So he pays the debt on our behalf. And he's the one we owe. And he paid it off. And in doing so, he forgives us. I love that he ends this section like this. With multiple descriptions of the gospel. Because they all point to the same thing we see over and over and over in this passage that it all comes from him. Look at those descriptions of the gospel. Nowhere in there do you really take a part. Nowhere in there do you really have a, much of a hand in anything that, gets hap- that happens to you in regards to your salvation. He qualifies you. He transfers you. He redeems you, right? He forgives you. This is not anything you've done. This is all about him. And just like he has done all of that for you already, now he continues to fill you and strengthen you and teach you that you might bear fruit and live like Jesus, that you would have the fullness of an abundant life in Christ. Church, as, as I wrap this up um, this week, I have two small, minor, huge cosmic things. Um, this week, pray this over yourself. Pray this passage over yourself. Like if you have no other quiet time, if you have no other prayer time in the week um, and, and like you don't make time for that, like take a minute and a half and open your Bible to Colossians 1, 9 through 14 and pray this over yourself, including the reminders of the gospel. That's thing one. Thing two, trust that he will answer that prayer. Let's pray.